welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation Commentary. I'm Bob Soon, and I'm alone on the podcast today without my usual dialogue partners. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. And today, I want to talk about the rhetoric of decolonization. We actually recorded an entire podcast about this topic, and then it got deleted. And so my goal in this short monologue is to recapture some of the content we were trying to put out there, but I have to do it by myself instead of with my usual partners, Chris Hemmelman and Dusty White. What triggered a concern to talk about this topic is, of course, what's been happening in the Middle East. As you know, on October 7th of this year, uh, Hamas terrorists uh, invaded the nation of Israel, killed 1,400 civilians. And since then, we've seen a response from Israel with an incursion into Gaza with the goal of wiping out Hamas, which is a terrorist organization. And what has been troubling to me as a pastor and as a Christian, sitting back and watching some of what's been going on, has been the justifications for the terrors of Hamas that have been offered in all corners of our society. And I want to take some time on this podcast to talk about that and to analyze what it is that we're hearing. From a Christian perspective, I think it should always we should always care about moral dialogue in our culture. We as Christians always care about what things are being justified, what things are being rationalized, what things in our culture are being labeled as good or bad, and what are the reasons behind those labels? What are the reasons those claims are being made? Because obviously, as Christians, we believe that uh, there is a God, that we live in a moral universe, that God has given us a standard of right and wrong in his revelation, and therefore, uh, we should always be attuned to the moral dialogue in our culture. One of the things that has been troubling in much of the dialogue about the Middle East is how many people, uh, especially in our broader culture, have equivocated on the evil of the terrorist actions of Hamas and have not only said that those actions were justified, but even said that they are a necessary act of rebellion against a colonizing power. One of the interesting pieces that's been written recently related to the decolonization narrative that we're hearing is a piece in The Atlantic dated October 27th, 2023, by Simon Sebag Montefiore, who is a British historian, a Cambridge-educated scholar of history, who is himself a Jewish man. And uh, it's a long-form piece. We'll link it in the show notes to this podcast so you can read it yourself. But I'd like to read some of his reasoning here as he introduces what he is recognizing and hearing in the broader dialogue. And again, it's not usually Christians who are speaking this way, but it is many academics, many student groups, many celebrities, many politicians. It is surprising in how many corners of our culture this language of decolonization is being used. Here's what Montefiore says in his piece. Since October 7th, Western academics, students, Artists and activists have denied, excused, or even celebrated the murders by a terrorist sect that proclaims an anti-Jewish genocidal program. Some of this is happening out in the open, some behind the masks of humanitarianism and justice, and some in code, 
most famously, from the river to the sea, a chilling phrase that implicitly endorses the killing or deportation of the 9 million Israelis. It seems odd that one has to say killing civilians, old people, and babies is always wrong. But today, say it one must. How can educated people justify such callousness and embrace such inhumanity? All sorts of things are at play here, but much of the justification for killing civilians is based on a fashionable ideology, decolonization, which taken at face value rules out the negotiation of two states, the only real solution to this century of conflict. So notice that Montefiore himself acknowledges that a two-state solution is really the only solution that's going to end the conflict over Palestine between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews. Uh, most sane people who look at the situation realize a two-state solution is the only answer, but he says the decolonization narrative makes that impossible. Now, here's what he goes on to speak about or how he describes the decolonization narrative. He says this narrative holds that Israel is an imperialist colonialist force, that Israelis are settler colonialists, and that Palestinians have a right to eliminate their oppressors. It casts Israelis as white or white adjacent and Palestinians as people of color. This ideology, powerful in the academy but long overdue for serious challenge, is a toxic, historically nonsensical mix of Marxist theory, Soviet propaganda, and traditional anti-Semitism. But its current engine is the new identity analysis, which sees history through a concept of race that derives from the American experiment. The argument is that it is almost impossible for the oppressed to be themselves racist, just as it is impossible for an oppressor to be the subject of racism. Jews, therefore, cannot suffer racism because they are regarded as white and privileged. Although they cannot be victims, they can and do exploit other, less privileged people in the West through the sins of exploitative capitalism and in the Middle East through colonialism. This leftist analysis with its hierarchy of oppressed identities and intimidating jargon, which is a clue to its lack of factual rigor, has in many parts of the academy and media replaced traditional universalist leftist values, including internationalist standards of decency and respect for human life. So I'm going to stop reading there, and I just want to observe a few things about what he is saying. He's saying that the current language of decolonization, which we are hearing a lot related to the Middle East, is being filtered through the new identity analysis, or what we have called intersectionality before on this podcast. That's sort of the, the term for it in the academy, which sees history through a concept of race that derives from the American experience. I think it's really interesting what he is observing there, which is that what this ideology is doing is it's taking the American experience of racial injustice particularly slavery, Jim Crow, all of the things that have led to a fracturing of racial relations in the United States and have been our original sin since the founding of our country. And it's reading that experience as the lens through which to read history. He says again, 
this analysis sees history through a concept of race that derives from the American experience. And therefore, he says, the argument is that it's impossible for the oppressed to be themselves racist, just as it is impossible for an oppressor to be the subject of racism. Now, in some sense, we've been talking about some of these themes on this podcast for six or seven years, ever since we did our first podcast on intersectionality back in 2017. But I think what's happening in the Middle East right now is highlighting and revealing for Christians the grave dangers and the grave moral confusion that this kind of thinking creates and allows. And I think the reason it's important for us to talk about that is that this rubric, this way of thinking, has actually made its way into the church in great measure, not uh, necessarily in a sinister way, not because anyone wanted to, to use a, a tool of analysis that would lead to oppression, but rather because of some of the racial conversations the church has been having over the last decade or so. So let me rewind the clock a little bit and talk about a few observations I've been making over the course of the last decade and how I think some of this language has gotten into the church in ways that aren't always helpful. I want to take you back about a decade to 2014, the year that Ferguson happened. On August 9th, 2014, 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. And that moment was the beginning of the fracturing, the beginning of the end of an amazing revival that had been taking place in the evangelical movement for about a decade. In Shai Lin's book, The New Reformation, subtitled Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity, which was published in 2021, Shai Lin tells the story of his own journey to faith. And as he narrates that, he, he mentions how significant it was for him the reality of Christian hip-hop. And he observes this in this book on page 77. I'm convinced that when the story is told, either in future generations or perhaps the new heavens and the new earth, that Christian hip-hop in the period of time 2002 to 2012 in America will be viewed as something of an awakening or revival similar to what God did with the Jesus movement of the late 1960s. When I read that in that book, it, it reminded me of the beauty of what the Spirit of God seemed to be doing in that decade from 2002 to 2012, both on the West Coast in Portland and on the East Coast in Philadelphia. And through the dissemination of the internet and popular culture, really this movement had influence throughout our country, but in both of those cities was a really profound movement of Christian hip-hop that combined the hip-hop musical style with profoundly deep Reformed theology. I mean, Lecrae was sampling John Piper sermons in his music. And uh, rappers were releasing albums on the doctrines of grace and on uh, Romans. And there was a really profound, beautiful thing happening that sort of combined movements of God in sort of urban hip-hop culture and 
the sort of new Calvinism and the new um, resurgence of Reformed theology that was happening through the preaching of John Piper and through the ministry of Mark Dever and others like that. And so for about a decade, there was really beautiful things happening that were bringing deeper racial unity in the church, um, that were healing some of the divides that have traditionally marked the church, and that was leading to sort of like a new theological center within the broader evangelical movement. And then what happened in the wake of 2014, especially in Ferguson, was that that movement began to fracture. I experienced in my, it in my own relational circles. Uh, many of the uh, black friends and Christian leaders that I had felt like their white counterparts were not vocal enough, did not speak up enough, did not lament well enough and clearly enough and quickly enough what was happening. And of course, Ferguson and then all kinds of other events since then, obviously Philandro Castile and George Floyd and many, many other similar situations uh, triggered all kinds of wounds and hurt and anger that go all the way back in the black experience to the, the dawn of America. And so within the church, you had African-American brothers and sisters who were feeling deeply the effects of these things and a white church that was slow and sluggish to know how to respond, act, feel in the midst of all that. And there began to be fractures within what was a real beautiful unity that God had been building. On the heels of that, what began to happen as the church in general started to try to have those conversations was that at the same time that those painful experiences and, and fractures were sort of being exposed in the academy, the rising tool for analyzing and for talking about issues of race was the tool of sort of neo-Marxism and especially the language of intersectionality and the language of the categories of power and oppression. And so many in the church began using those categories, those tools as a, as a rubric to speak about some of what they were experiencing. And that was not always done in the most careful ways. And so what began to happen in circles that I run in is that you started hearing language of, we need to decenter white voices. We need to decenter Puritan theology. We need to decenter historic sort of white European theological voices. And instead, we need to center minority voices. Now, in those claims, there's always both a truth and a falsehood. The truth, certainly, is that there are ways in which any culture has muted certain voices and elevated other ones in ways in which that always reflects dynamics of power. That's certainly true. However, the claims that were being made there, the statements that were being made, troubled me somewhat, but I didn't know why. And so I didn't really talk about it or say anything about it because I just wasn't sure what I was feeling. But there was something about that language of decentering whiteness or decentering sort of European Puritans that felt like not the right solution to me. It felt troubling. What I'm seeing happening now in the, in the conflicts between 
Israel and Palestinian Arabs gives a little more clarity to, I think, what was troubling in that moment. And it reminds me, dialing back the clock even further, to the beginnings of Quorum Deo Church, when we had a very wonderful uh, ministry down the street from us that did work among the poorest of the poor in globally depressed areas. So there was a ministry headquartered out of Omaha, Nebraska, that sent missionaries to live and work and minister among the poorest of the poor. And they were very influenced um, by Latin American liberation theology. Now, they had done a good job sort of recapturing that and framing it within a Protestant framework. But through connections to that ministry and some of the people that overlapped with our church, I began reading Latin American liberation theology just to familiarize myself with that stream of thinking and with how it was being appropriated and applied. And one of, the, one of the phrases that that ministry down the street frequently used and that I saw frequently in Latin American liberation theology was the language of God's preferential option for the poor. The Latin American liberation theologians working mostly in the Roman Catholic tradition had spoken of as they read the Old Testament prophets and as they saw um, God's favoring of the poor and his judgment on uh, the economic oppressiveness of powerful regimes, they applied that then to the structures of mid-20th century Latin America and claimed that God had a preferential option for the poor. That is that God preferred the poor, that he was on the side of the poor rather than on the side of the rich. Again, that troubled me for obvious reasons, mainly the fact that the Bible does not speak that way. That though the Bible does have strong denunciations of oppressive uh, affluence, you also have Jesus in the Gospels subsisting off of the generosity of many of the women who are wealthy, who are supporting his ministry. You have him commending people like Zacchaeus, a wealthy tax collector uh, who turns in faith to Christ. And though you have parables like the rich young ruler where he says, go sell everything you have, that's not the monolithic framework with which Jesus deals with wealth and poverty. And so as I read the scriptures and read Latin American liberation theology, my conclusion was, and the conversations I would often have with people who were influenced by this ministry down the street, is that Jesus, the, the, the moral language of the New Testament related to wealth and poverty is not rich people bad, poor people good. Nor can we rightly say that God has a preferential option for the poor simply because they are poor. But rather, that what God wants is righteousness. And there are unrighteous rich people and unrighteous poor people, and there are righteous rich people and righteous poor people. There's, there's more here than just means, than just material wealth, than just the station of what kind of life you are born into or what kind of existence you live in. So having that experience with liberation theology early in my ministry I began to sense something of that same thing happening in some of our race conversations. Again, usually 
driven out of good motives, out of the church trying to make sense of what is racial justice and what should our approach to the racial challenges of life in America look like. But when, we, when I started hearing language of decentering certain voices and centering other ones, and the only category there was race, whether the voice was black or white, I began to see the same problem that I had seen in liberation theology where the categories were rich or poor. And the problem is, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, that the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. That the Bible's language of righteousness is not language of race, it's not language of affluence, but it's language of individual, personal righteousness before God. And so anytime we see good and evil flattened into categories of either wealth or class or race, we are seeing a movement that is colored more by Marxist categories than by biblical ones. This is not to say that Marx, Marxist categories contribute nothing helpful. I disagree with those who would say we can't ever use uh, a, a system outside of the Bible as a tool for analysis. Of course we can. We live in God's world. We believe in general revelation. All truth is God's truth. However, the problems with liberation theology and the problems with the language of centering and decentering have been highlighted in a fresh way in the last month in this language of decolonization. I want to read again from Simon Montefiore's article in The Atlantic, which I think does a great job of highlighting the problem of the decolonization narrative. Remember, the category is that the Palestinian Arabs who lived in the, the Middle East and in the land of Palestine, Israel, in the 19th and 20th centuries were then forcibly removed from that land by the colonializing power of the nation of Israel. And therefore, Jews currently living in Israel are the colonizers who have oppressed the Palestinians and therefore that the Palestinians have a right, and even in some cases, some would say a responsibility, a moral ought to react and rebel against the colonizing force by whatever means necessary. At least those are some of the arguments that have been made in the past month as this whole situation has unfolded. Let me read to you the connection Montefiore makes between what's going on in Israel and how it connects to some of the modern trends in the Western academies. He writes, The open world of liberal democracies, or the West as it used to be called, is today polarized by paralyzed politics, petty but vicious cultural feuds about identity and gender, and guilt about historical successes and sins a guilt that is bizarrely atoned for by showing sympathy for and even attraction to enemies of our democratic values. In this scenario, Western democracies are always bad actors, hypocritical and neo-imperialist, while foreign autocracies or terror sects such as Hamas are enemies of imperialism and therefore sincere forces for good. In this topsy-turvy scenario, Israel 
is a living metaphor and penance for the sins of the West. The result is the intense scrutiny of Israel and the way it is judged, using standards rarely attained by any nation at war, including the United States. But the decolonizing narrative is much worse than a study in double standards. It dehumanizes an entire nation and excuses and even celebrates the murder of innocent civilians. As these past two weeks have shown, remember he's writing at the end of October, decolonization is now the authorized version of history in many of our schools and supposedly humanitarian institutions and among artists and intellectuals. It is presented as history, but it is actually a caricature. Zombie history with an arsenal of jargon, the sign of a coercive ideology, as Foucault argued, and its authoritarian narrative of villains and victims. And it only stands up in a landscape in which much of the real history is suppressed and in which all Western democracies are bad faith actors. Although it lacks the sophistication of Marxist dialectic, its self-righteous moral certainty imposes a moral framework on a complex, intractable situation. Whenever you read a book or an article and it uses the phrase settler colonialist, you are dealing with ideological polemic, not history. Now, in no way am I suggesting that Everybody who uses the language of decolonization would apply that same rubric to challenges of race in the church, nor am I saying that those who were arguing for decentering white voices or even those who uh, would have embraced a certain kind of liberation theology would also embrace their narrative of decolonization. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am trying to show is that there is a linear intellectual connection between all of these different ways of thinking and these rubrics and frameworks for looking at forces of oppression in the world. And the problem with all of them is that rather than dealing with each individual human as a moral agent who stands before God in his or her own righteousness or unrighteousness, it connects people to larger classes and groups and treats classes or groups as righteous or unrighteous, as good or bad. And that in itself is an unbiblical and unchristian way of dealing with moral questions. So what I am suggesting is that as we've seen this decolonization narrative take shape in the response to Hamas's terror on October 7th, it has revealed the moral vacuousness of this way of thinking. It's revealed that it fails to do justice to biblical categories of morality. And I think that is a blessing to the church. It's a blessing to Christians because it helps us step back and ask in what ways have our moral ways of thinking perhaps been colored by some of these categories? How does this provide an opportunity for us to step back and evaluate, are we using biblical categories? Have we embraced the wrong set of tools? What tools does the Bible give us to have the same conversations in a more biblical, more traditionally and historically Christian fashion? The language of decolonization, 
the language of decentering, the language of a preferential option for the poor, this language will not work because it is not biblical. It cannot get us where we need to go. And so as we have now the fresh perspective of history and watching how many Western academics and students and activists have celebrated terrorism because it is an act of decolonization, how does that perhaps give us a greater clarity about the dangers of this way of thinking and a greater commitment to use instead the Bible's own framework for our moral calculations. So I think this is an opportunity for us to right the ship, to change course a little bit, to continue having important conversations about race and class and gender, but to have them in ways that do not borrow terms and categories from a neo-Marxist identity politics intersectional way of thinking. The Bible has always given us fine categories to use. The Bible is the framework through which we should think about questions of moral and ethical justice. And so let this be an opportunity for us then to return to a biblical way of thinking about all kinds of moral and ethical questions in our own lives, in our society, and in the world. If you want to read the article by Simon Montefiore, which I, I would recommend, I haven't even read the sections where he frames out the history of Israel and Palestine. And so if you're a little confused about how did we get to this moment, what are people fighting over, what is the past history of this portion of land and the past attempts that have been made at peace, if you're wondering about all those historical questions, this would be a great article for you to read. So I recommend it. And we will post it. I'll post the link to the Internet Archive because that way it uh, isn't behind a paywall. And so you should be able to read the entire piece. Again, it's a long-form article from The Atlantic. The title of the article is The Decolonization Narrative is Dangerous and False. I hope you go check it out. And I hope this little commentary has been helpful to you to frame up some of the conversations and questions we as Christians should be asking. As we always say, the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in whatever context you are ministering in. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, future podcast topics, or you want to drop off snacks, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. We love to hear from you. And we're thankful for your support of our podcast. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Hey.